Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke uh, chapter 18, beginning at verse 28 and reading through verse 34. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 28 and reading through verse 34. We spent the last two Sundays looking uh, at the first part of this uh, first paragraph here, Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler who who comes to Jesus asking about uh, eternal life. Uh, And we looked at that conversation from, from two different perspectives. Two Sundays ago, we looked at Jesus' command as as a mirror, as a a mirror which shows us our sin, which shows us to be lawbreakers, justly deserving of God's condemnation and wrath. But then last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' command as a a lamp or as a, a light to our path and to our feet, a guide to walking in the fullness of the blessing that is ours in Christ. And we can always look at God's law from both of these perspectives. We can look at God's law as that which shows us to be sinners and therefore condemns us. Or we can look at his law as a lamp to the feet of those who have been set free in Christ. As a true blessing, as that which is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And remembering those two perspectives will be important as we consider Jesus' answer to Peter's question this morning in verses 28 through 34. So let us... Read these verses together. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 28. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Pray with me. Father God, we do ask for your blessing. We ask that you would lead us into your truth by your spirit this morning, that we would properly understand and apply this portion of your word that we might be conformed more to the image of your Son, and we might be equipped to work in the service of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look again at Peter's statement there in verse 28. Having seen the rich young ruler walk away sad, and having heard Jesus say that it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, Peter, in his impetuous way, speaks up and he says, See, behold, look at us, Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. 
And the word homes is, is really quite a loose translation. It might be literally translated as just our things. It is, it is the stuff that is ours. It is our possessions. It is our property. We have left that which was ours, and we have followed you. It seems that Peter is claiming that he and the twelve have done what the rich young ruler was not willing to do. The rich young ruler walked away sad because he was not willing to divest himself of his wealth and give to the poor and and then follow Jesus. But the disciples, they have. They have left that which was theirs. They have left their homes. They have left their businesses. They have left their families. And they have followed Jesus. Jesus. And this is what Peter wants to make sure that that Jesus doesn't miss. But why? What What is Peter doing? Why does Peter feel compelled to make this observation at this point? I think we can take his statement in one of two ways. First, his statement may be an expression of anxiety. Having heard Jesus say that it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Peter may be wondering whether what they've done was enough. You know, is what we've done enough, Jesus? He may be looking for for comfort and assurance. He may be looking for Jesus to assure him that, yes, yes, you are truly my disciples. On the other hand, it could also be a statement of confidence. He could be saying, hey, we did it. Look, look at us. We, we've done what you've asked. We've left our homes and our possessions. He, he may be looking simply for confirmation and praise that, yes, you're the ones who get it. You are my prize pupils. Given what we know about the disciples, I'm going to guess it's the latter of these two options. Remember, these are the, the guys who are constantly arguing with which, uh, one another about which one's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It didn't seem they had much anxiety about whether they were in. They were wondering what, what seat they were going to have at the table. And so I suspect that Peter is saying, hey, look at us. We've done what the rich young ruler didn't do. We've, we've earned our place at the table. So how would you expect Jesus to respond to such a comment? It seems pretty clear that, that the disciples are, are operating with a, a framework of, of works righteousness, of, of having done what was necessary to earn their spot. And they are boasting of their good works. And, and how is Jesus going to respond? You might expect Jesus to shut them down or to, to put them in their place or to, to show them that they are not all that they think they are. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, notice Jesus is is exceedingly gentle. He is exceedingly gracious with them. And I want you to notice that this morning because I want it to be an encouragement to you. We've been talking about the gospel in in rather explicit terms for the last several weeks. And the the truth of the matter is, is that we are not wired to receive and rest in such a gospel. Our sinful natures fight against it. We we want to earn our way. We want to establish our own righteousness. We want to prove that we were accepted because we were good enough. We don't want anybody's charity. We want to deserve. We want to earn. We want to merit. And so we wrestle with this gospel. We, We wrestle to really believe it. We wrestle to really rest in it. And if that is where you are this morning, if you are wrestling to truly receive and, and believe this gospel, I want you to see the way that Jesus interacts with his disciples, and I want it to encourage you. 
mean, notice Luke says, none of them understood these things. They didn't get it. We're going to talk more about that next week, actually, about them simply not getting it. But for, for now, just be encouraged that Jesus is patient with his foolish disciples. He's, he's patient with those who, who don't get it. And so if you're struggling to, to get it, if you're struggling to hear and to understand and to truly rest in this gospel, if you think you've got it one day, but the next day you're, you're confused again, I've got good news. Jesus is patient with people just like you. <laughs> Jesus is, is patient with, with people like me. He is, he is kind. And just as he walks with the disciples, he will walk with us. And so it's with that confidence, that, that confidence that Jesus walks with disciples who are slow to learn. It's with that confidence that I want us to, to look more closely at his reply to Peter's comment. And we're really going to see two things this morning. First, we are going to see that, that Jesus assures Peter and the other disciples that all those who, who leave their homes and their families for the sake of the kingdom, all those who leave all to follow him, will receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. That is good. That is, that is good news, and we need to understand that, and we need to unpack that. But then, just in case you missed it, Just in case his disciples mistakenly think that this reward will be theirs because they have earned it, Jesus immediately pulls them aside and reminds them that this reward will be theirs, not because they are worthy, but because it has been bought and paid for with his own precious blood. So we need to hold these two truths together. There is great reward in leaving all to follow him. And that reward is bought and paid for by the blood of of our Savior. So let's begin with the reward. Again, look at verse 29. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or, or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So the first question we have to ask is, who is Jesus talking about? Who, who are these people whom he is referring to. He he describes them as those who have left house or wife or brothers or parents or or children. We've already said that the disciples seem to be thinking in the same uh, general framework as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus asking what he could do to earn eternal life. He was thinking in terms of works righteousness, of what he needed to do. In the same way, the disciples now are boasting that they have done the very thing that the rich young ruler was not allowed to do. And at first blush, it looks as if Jesus is describing people who have done enough, who have earned their way. But remember what we saw last Sunday. Such a a reading of the text is is totally out of accord with the context of of what's going on here in Luke chapter 18. It it doesn't fit with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where where Jesus tells us that it was the tax collector, the man without righteousness, the man who had not done these things, who went home justified. And it certainly doesn't fit with Jesus' teaching about, about the children, saying that if you do not come as a child then you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. 
And of course, it doesn't fit with what we read elsewhere in the New Testament either, where, where we are told that we are justified not by works of the law, but through faith. It is not the one who works, but the one who believes that God justifies. It is the ungodly whom he justifies. It is the sinner whom he forgives. It is the unhealthy whom he heals. This is the theme of of Scripture again and again and again. So, as I said last Sunday, it cannot be that Jesus is here teaching works righteousness. He cannot be teaching us that, that, that if we express perfect devotion to Him, if we just do enough, if we just deny ourselves of enough, if we just obey Him completely enough, then we can have life in the kingdom. But He is talking about those who have left homes and, and family to, to follow Him. So what's going on? How, how can on the one hand it be an expression of works righteousness, and on the other hand it be an expression of faith? Well, it comes back to exactly what we've been saying about the law. When you are under the law, when you are trying to get to God through the law, the law is a burden you cannot bear. It is a, it is a burden that can bring only condemnation. It is, it is a, a burden that will ultimately crush you. The law brings death, Paul says. But at the same time, Paul also says, but that law is good and holy. It is sweet and it is precious. How can it be both? Well, again, think about what we said. If you are under the law, if you have to get to God through the law, it is condemnation, it is burden. But if you are out from under the law, if you've been set free from the law, it is now a lamp to your feet. And so the same language that can be used to describe the the works righteousness of the man trying to establish his own righteousness can also be used to describe the life of faith. The life of one who has turned from his sin to God with the full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. The law describes the very things that faith does. Faith is obedient. Faith expresses itself in love, which is the fulfillment of God's law. And so the one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ will leave all to follow him. They will will deny themselves and they will acknowledge Jesus as king and they will devote themselves to his service, not to earn, but to express faith in who he is. This is why we sometimes get confused about, about works. We sometimes think, well, we're not saved by works, therefore we're against works. No, we're not. No, we're not. We just have to get him on the right side of the equation. It is not our works that lead to our salvation, but it is our salvation that leads to works. We, we see this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, 8 through 10, where we have been saved by grace apart from works. Why? So that we might do the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. So the very same language that the disciples can use To boast of who they are, Jesus can say, yes, you are those who have done that. That that is a true expression of faith. But he's not going to let them believe that they have earned anything for very long. We're going to see that at the end when he he talks to them about his, his death and resurrection. But for now, what we want to focus on is simply the reward. What is the reward that Jesus promises to those who have repented and believed, to those who have, who have denied themselves and left all to follow Him, those who have believed in Him as the Lord Jesus Christ? What is this reward? And what we notice is that it's a twofold reward. Again, notice what He says. There is a reward in this time, and there is a reward in the age to come. 
In this time, you will receive, what did he say? Many times more. Whatever you have left, you will receive back many times more. Not in heaven, but in this time. And in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. Now, we're more familiar, I think, with the second half of that equation, so I want to start there. The the second half of this reward is eternal life. This is what we receive in the age to come. So, So what is this talking about? What is eternal life? You've heard me say it before, but it's, it's worth repeating that, that eternal life is not simply everlasting life. It is not simply this life forever. It is not simply this, this life extended into eternity. I'm not sure that any of us would regard that as a good thing. Any of us would regard that as a reward. This life wears us out. This life wears us down. This life is full of futility and groaning. We know that to be the case. We experience that daily. Yes, there are good aspects of this life. Yes, there are things that we enjoy. But I cannot imagine this life going on forever. That's not the reward that that Jesus is, is talking about. Rather, he is talking about eternal life in the age to come. That eternal life is not simply everlasting life, but it is life restored It is life put right. It is life purified, undefiled by sin. It is life where the the curse has been lifted and futility has been removed, where thorns and thistles are no more. It's what we sing about when we sing that, that great Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. He has come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wherever there is curse today, which is everywhere... His blessings will be, the curse will be no more. That is eternal life. It is life put right. Life as it is supposed to be. Your relationship with God will be restored. Your relationship with yourself will be restored. There will be no more guilt. There will be no more shame. There will be no more war against the sinful passions of our flesh. We will delight in that which is good and we will love that which is holy and we will pursue it with perfect self-control. Can you imagine? This is what is in our future. This is eternal life. Our, our relationship with God, perfect peace. Our relationship with ourselves, but right, our relationship with one another. What is it that causes fights and quarrels among us, James says? Is it not our sinful passions? Is it not our selfishness? It is when we put our own interests first that we go to war, and those wars will cease. Again and again, the Old Testament prophets talk about God breaking the bow and turning the spears into pruning hooks. The weapons of war will be no more because they will no more be needed. There will be true peace. There will be true shalom. We will relate to one another as we were intended to and the the beauty of God's goodness. And our relationship with creation itself will be restored. This creation, which is now subject to futility, this this creation, which which now produces hurricanes that that ravage and earthquakes that, that shake, it will be put right. The things that, that are now out of joint will be made whole. Our relationship with all creation will again be restored. The, the, the toil of work will be replaced by blessing. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that that work is not part of the curse? We think it's that way sometimes. But we think it's that way because because work has been cursed. 
But work is not a curse. Work is actually a joy. It is a, it is a joy to use our hands or to use our minds or to use our words to, to, to bring order to God's creation and blessing to His people. That is a good thing, a good thing that is often frustrated, a good thing that, that often doesn't go the way we plan. But those frustrations and those futilities will be no more in the age to come. This is eternal life. This is what is promised to us. This is why the the Puritans uh, used to say that we must set our mind on the reward that will be ours. People today sometimes think that, well, you're so heavenly minded, your mind is so set on the future that you're no earthly good. Not at all. It is this hope of a future glory that actually sets us free. That sets us free in the present to to be for others. To give ourselves away because our future is secure. Your future in Christ is eternal life. And that is good beyond comprehension. But it's not all that Jesus promises. Do you see that? It's not all that He promises. Yes, there is reward in the age to come, but notice, there is reward here and now. Look again at at verse 30. Jesus says, The one who leaves home or wives or, or brothers or parents for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive back in this time many times more. It's an amazing promise. In this time, in this life, here and now, if you leave all to follow Him, you will receive back many times more. What is Jesus saying? What what does He mean? I want to suggest to you that we're not meant to take this literally. We, We aren't meant to get out our accounting ledger and begin calculating the reward that that we are owed because of our self-sacrifice on Jesus' behalf. I've I've seen this done, and it can be an ugly thing. I've I've seen pastors on TV who who literally say to to the people in their audience, if if, if you need a thousand dollars, tie the hundred, and God will give it back to you. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about pre-tithing. He's not talking about doing something to place God in your debt. We we must not misunderstand what he is saying. We aren't meant to get out our accounting ledgers. We're not meant to take this literally. But but I want you to hear something. It's not literal, but it's true. It's true. You will receive back in this time many times more. You have to let that sink in. You have to let that saturate your mind. It's not literal, but it is true. Jesus is saying that we will receive back from Him something that is many times greater than whatever it is you left behind. Yes, there is a future reward. That future reward is eternal life. But I want you to hear me say, it is not the case that we give up the good now in order to get the best down the road. We sometimes think that way. Well, we're giving up the good now, but it's going to be really good down the road. It's going to be really good in the future. So so I'll accept the bad now because I know the good is going to be so good in the age to come. But Jesus says if you think that way, you're, you're actually seeing things falsely. It is not the case that we give up the good now in order 
to get the good down the road. I can remember working with youth who, who used to think, well, you know, I was really good all week. You know, I really tried hard to be kind to my siblings. I really tried hard to show self-control. I'm going to reward myself with a little bit of sin this weekend. You know, that sounds perverse. That sounds crass. But have you ever thought those ways? Have you, have you ever thought of sin as the good thing? The good thing that you were giving up in order to get God's blessing down the road and that you know, maybe after you know, several days or several weeks or several months, depending on your level of self-control, that you really sort of deserved a day off. You deserved a day to, to indulge because sin is actually the reward. No, Jesus says. What you give up is nothing compared to what you get. Mark says a hundred times, not just many times, but a hundred times greater. They, they are not worth comparing. The good that will be ours is not worth comparing. It is better. It is better to be a steward at God's house. It is better to walk in the paths of His righteousness. It is better to submit yourself to His will than to go your own way and do your own thing and be your own Master, we have to ask ourselves if we really believe that. Do we truly believe that it is better to follow Jesus? Do we truly believe that that what we leave behind is nothing compared to what we get? It can be hard to believe sometimes. You know, for the person who, who has left a life ravaged by sin, for the person who, who's, whose life was so clearly in bondage, when they, when they walk out of that, they can see, yes, this is better. But, but what about the person in the Middle East? What about the person in the, the Far East, whose life is now unimaginably hard because they have left all to follow Jesus? Is it, is it true for them? Or maybe closer to home, what about the middle class American? whose life has now become more uncomfortable, whose life is is now called to be left self-centered because they are following Christ. Is it true for them? Do we believe that those who, who leave all leave the worse for the better? Do we truly believe that? Do we believe that what we receive here and now is many times more than whatever it is we left behind? We struggle. We, we struggle to believe it, I think, because our definition of many times more doesn't always line up with, with God's definition of many times more. Our definition goes something like this. We think, well, you know, I left my job or I, left, I gave up that promotion in order to, to follow Jesus, and so he owes me a better job or, or he owes me a, a bigger promotion. Or we think, I, I left that relationship because Jesus called me out of it, and so now he owes me a better relationship. He owes me a many times more relationship. Or we think, I, I walked away from a good life to follow him. I ought to end up with a better life. Something like Job. You know, I, I ought to be rewarded many times better than what I had before. And if you just look at the ledger, it doesn't seem to always work out that way. But here is the truth. Here is the truth of what, of what God says. Here is the truth of what, what Jesus is calling his disciples to see. That our definitions of good are, are what are out of whack. That, that, that our, it's our definitions of, of good that are, that are blind. We, we focus on the fleeting pleasures of sin. And, and Jesus says, I have for you lasting, solid, eternal joys. 
The joy of my salvation, even in the midst of poverty, is many times more than whatever riches you left behind. The joy of of knowing me is far greater, far surpasses, so much so that, that Paul can say all else is rubbish by comparison. Whatever you left behind to to come know me, it was worth it. You can count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing and being known by Christ. You don't leave the better for the worse so that you can get the best in the end. You leave a life of bondage and emptiness and vanity and futility. To come in to the love and the peace and the knowledge of your heavenly Father in Christ. And in the end, receive eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the question we have to wrestle with, the question we have to ask ourselves is is simply this. What is it that you really want? Do you want the American dream? Or do you want the good, perfect, pleasing will of God? Do you want a a comfortable middle-class life? Or do you want the surpassing worth of knowing and being known by your Savior? Do you want man's wisdom? Or do you want the wisdom of God? The rich young ruler walked away because he wanted the American dream, or maybe I should say the, the Roman dream. But he chose poorly. He chose the lesser. Augustine famously said in his confessions, God has made us for himself, and we will remain restless until we find our rest in him. He calls us to rest. He calls us to drink deeply. He calls us to to eat to the full. He, He calls us into true shalom. He calls us to eternal life, both now and forever more. So the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that whatever you leave behind is nothing? It is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus and being known by Him. This is what Jesus wants His disciples to see. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, yes, you've left a lot. And in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. But even here and now, what you receive is many times more. But then he says, but let me tell you, it's not yours because you earned it. Where do you think Peter's confidence was on the night that Jesus was betrayed? Here, Jesus, Peter, is is very self-confident. Here, he is very self-assured. And and, in just a few days, he is going to assure Jesus, Jesus, we will even die for you. And then he runs for the hills the moment Jesus is betrayed. He he runs and he hides, and so do all of the other twelve. Where is their confidence then? Do you see assurance based upon your good works, assurance based upon your own faithfulness is a very fragile thing. It's only as good as your tomorrow. Thank God we don't stand upon the record of our day-to-day faithfulness. But what does Jesus say? He says, remember... We're going to Jerusalem so that I can lay down my life, so that I can die even as the prophets foretold, so that I can shed my blood as the ransom price 
for many. That's what this table is all about. Why are these blessings that we've been talking about, why are they yours? Not because you're so faithful. Not because you've been so good. But because He was faithful. Because He was good. Because He who knew no sin, who lived a perfect life of perfect obedience, then chose to become sin for us. To lay down His life for us. That in Him, we might die to sin and be raised again to newness of life. The blessings are beyond comprehension. And so is the price paid for them. We didn't earn it. It was bought and paid for by another. We've been ransomed not with perishable things, but with the imperishable blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of who He is and because of what He did for us, we now know that whatever we leave behind, we will receive many times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. And because that promise belongs to sinners such as us, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, I pray that You would allow this Gospel to to fill up our hearts and to saturate our minds. That we might know its peace. That we might know its joy. And that we might walk in its hope both now and forevermore. Father, grant by Your mercy that according to the working of Your Holy Spirit, we might adorn this Gospel by doing the good works that You have prepared for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.